LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Andy Duncan, who joins us to discuss the 2017 UK general election and the wider political and economic scene, past, present and future. The election takes place one week from now, on Thursday, June the 8th. Like many political systems around the world, UK politics is deeply divided and in a growing state of disarray. Many feel that voting today has become all but irrelevant and in future may, at best, achieve little more than cementing a series of conflict-ridden coalitions. At worst, the current schizophrenic state of paralysis and upheaval may trigger the rise of a party, perhaps as yet unknown, of the ultra-extreme right or left. In the face of enormous global challenges, in energy, economy and environment in particular, We hear little from the political class beyond predictable, pie-in-the-sky promises and empty rhetoric about values, aspirations and hard-working families. And yet many citizens still believe that their vote actually counts for something, when in the vast majority of cases, it rarely, if ever, makes any real difference to anything. But who can blame them? We have long surrendered our sovereign status and personal agency to a kleptocratic elite obsessed with power wealth and self-aggrandizement. And now, entire generations know nothing else. We explore these and other related issues including why the differences between the main political parties are disappearing, where we are headed if things continue as they are, and how the global financial crisis of 2007-8, which was not allowed to run its rightful course, is coming back to bite us hard. In a system where voters can see no real alternatives and increasingly resign themselves to disillusion and apathy, what will so-called representative democracy, and indeed industrial civilization itself, look like in the coming decades? Hello and welcome Andy, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure Greg, nice to talk to you again. I think this is about interview number seven actually we've done together, believe it or not, going back to ooh, probably 2012. Today we're going to be talking, we're going to be reprising our role in 2015. Uh, we're going to be discussing the upcoming prospects for the UK general election, a new parliament being elected. Uh, that's happening next week, Thursday the 8th of June. Uh, now there wasn't even supposed to be an election until 2020 or there didn't need to be one according to the rules, parliamentary rules until 2020. But mm-hmm. Theresa May, the current prime minister who took over from David Cameron, she called a snap election, sensing, I suspect, uh, Labour, the main opposition here in the UK, sensing them in disarray. And even though the Tories are hardly, I've got the nation dancing in the streets with joy, 
she's sensing a relatively strong position and that's why she's gone for this. Although it's interesting that the current polling indicates that all the party's numbers with the public are down, apart from Labour, which has taken an uptick, more or less equaling all the downticks in all the other parties. So I don't know what that tells us at this stage. But before we dive into all that, just say a word uh, to the listeners just about who you are and what you do, whatever you like, just so that this Andy Duncan guy isn't completely faceless. But just tell us about your impressions from what you've seen so far of this round of political shenanigans. Well, as, as you know, maybe some of your listeners don't, I'm a, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, a believer in a totally voluntary society. So I'm what my, my relatives and my friends, some of them would call an extremist, but, uh, it's just as a believer in a totally voluntary society. And I try to avoid elections and politics as much as possible. But my background, actually, long-term background, I was a socialist for a very, very, very long time until I was 35 years old. So I was very heavily involved in the Labour Party and, you know, knocking on doors and canvassing in, in various constituencies and um, even got asked once to become a Labour MP. Um, but I just couldn't quite cross that threshold. I, we could talk about that, about why later on. But then gradually from, I mean, I voted for Tony Blair in 1997. I believed all the things he came out with. Uh, I was very heavily involved in the kind of um, militant tendency movement before that. So I was a real hardcore Trotskyite socialist before then. Uh, very heavily involved in the Marxism Today kind of movement, which which was behind Tony Blair. But then gradually, f- from about 1997 onwards, I, I kind of took a very long shift to a totally different position because I could see there were many things wrong in the world, but I gradually realized socialism wasn't the answer. And to, to cut a long story short, I eventually got to a book called Human Action by uh, Ludwig von Mises, um, and became a, a Misesian sort of overnight. When reading that book, it kind of it kind of clarified all the thoughts I'd had for a very very long time, and then gradually moved much more into the Austrian school with uh, with Murray Rothbard, and then later Professor Hans Hermann Hopper, and I uh, I regularly meet the Professor Hopper in Turkey each year where I go to his conference, and I go to various other conferences around the world. I've just been to one in Brazil with an organisation called Mises Brazil which was a lot of fun, where, where I, I spoke on a couple of topics. I spoke on Brexit uh, for half an hour, and then I spoke on uh, how to counter socialism for half an hour as well. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, and I'd like to do more of that in the future. I've also helped form with uh, with my good friend, Keir Martland. He's the main driving force behind a new thing called Mises UK or Mises or Ludwig von Mises Centre UK. I'll kind of be uh, behind the scenes without helping Keir out. So I'm very heavily involved in the kind of Austrian uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, kind of movement. So that's that's where I am now, and I think that's where I'll always be, to be honest. Yes, it's uh, coming back to me now. In fact, it was when I approached Hans Hermann Hoppe about uh, an interview concerning his book, uh, Democracy, The God That Failed, and he actually said he didn't have time, and he <laughs> suggested that I speak to you. Yeah, it's a very pertinent book. Uh, if any of your readers do like living on the edge a little bit, then uh, that is a fantastic book for them to read, Democracy, the God That Failed. Um, it might take a little bit of uh, getting used to when you read it. Um, maybe another way into that is to read more Murray Rothbard first, A Man, Economy and State, and uh, Ludwig von Mises, A Human Action as well. But w- once you're ready for the hard stuff, the uh, the dimple pinch whiskey, uh, that's going to be democracy of the god that fell, which is still uh, it's, a, it's a kind of um, pan galactic gargle blaster of a book. 
Well, it's funny you speaking about your political journey kind of sheds light on a phenomenon that, uh, you know, politicians in general in the mainstream struggle with, which is changing their mind. And it's seen as, you know, it's the whole U-turn thing. Now, there's different um, colours of this. And by that, I mean, there's one thing to be constantly changing your position, being inconsistent, not really having coherent philosophy, you know, jettisoning things on, you know, purely um, arbitrary basis or just for some narrow selfish reason there's another thing to come to a new worldview even particularly a radically new one just as a process of personal evolution and i that's just one of the things that drives me nuts about the mainstream political discourse i mean in this country but in the u.s and all the sort of you know western democracies that we're familiar with and of course in other political systems as well but sticking with the um with liberal democracies, is this inability for people just to say, actually, I've revised my position and now this, it happens very, very seldom. And it's almost a reason in itself to, for politicians to be belittled and berated, you know, by the, uh, by, by the media or whatever. So if you were to change your position to one that was patently better, the fact that you did it would be like, let's not worry about the substance of the improvement you've made. Let's just think about the fact that you've changed your mind. That in itself is supposedly a problem. Well, it seems to be a political kryptonite, doesn't it? Um, before you asked me to do this program, I was uh, trying to completely avoid all politics coverage in the UK because it just depresses me even seeing BBC News or Sky News or Channel 4 News and especially seeing Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn. But for the good of this program, Greg, and for the, for the good of the Moffat Empire, I decided ah. to man, I decided to man up and uh, and watch uh, yesterday's um, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn interviews on Sky News with Jeremy Paxman uh, and, a, and, and, an, and an audience. Uh, I, I tried to watch it last night, but as soon as it came on, I had to turn it off because I couldn't watch it. So I, I taped it and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have to watch it before I talk to Greg. And I did just watch it just before you uh, you Skyped me tonight. And it is political kryptonite of saying that you've changed your mind. So Jeremy Paxman got them both on two different topics. With um, with Jeremy Corbyn, he got him on his uh, his old connections to the IRA. Now, I would say, if, if, if I'd been him, yes, I used to believe in the IRA, but now I don't. Um, but he just could not bring himself to say, prevaricating, obfuscating, just trying to avoid answering a very simple question. And again, he was uh, cornered on the, uh, the, the the Trident uh, thing, the nuclear missile thing. Now, I, I'm a believer in uh, getting rid of all nuclear weapons. I actually believe in Jeremy Corbyn's old position of just let's get rid of them all because the dangers of them going, going off even by accident or terrorists getting hold of them and setting them off is just too high or just a mistaken thing happening, computer system being invaded by a virus that sets them off the, the kind of Terminator mode. So... I actually agree with his old position, which is just let's get rid of them. But he, he, he was, he, he said he would send out the orders to the Trident, um, submarine captains to set the missiles off. And he, he just couldn't change his position. It was very, very difficult for him to do so. But at least he, at least he, he looked like he was squirming. Whereas with Theresa May, uh, Jeremy Paxman got her on two topics. The first one was, I think she said six times uh, before the election that she wouldn't have an election. And then she decided to have an election. So there's one big problem for her, but she still couldn't bring herself to kind of 
say yes i was wrong about that and then the second thing that he uh, he got her on was that she believed in remain and she said leaving the eu was a was a terrible thing to do before the brexit election and now she's campaigning on the basis of i i will push brexit through and make a great deal of it and again she just the politicians just seem incapable of saying i i've changed my mind it, it is political kryptonite now why that is uh, i don't know i suppose it's because they can then be attacked for their integrity but wouldn't it be refreshing if politicians could say the old position I had 20 years ago when I was much, much younger was incorrect and through life's experience I've changed my mind. But because of the way democracy goes, and this is talked about in democracy, the god that failed, politicians just are incapable of doing that. And so they, they get hamstrung on these things they said 20 years ago. Well, I mean, two thoughts there. First is... Regarding Corbyn, just use let let's use that example of the IRA. I don't know the details of what his thinking or his statements were about that, but in general, to the extent that it has been resolved, how did the troubles in Northern Ireland get resolved? Uh, well, because the key players involved in extremely polarized positions to the point of killing each other changed their minds up to a point. They maybe didn't change some of their fundamental beliefs or what sort of outcome they would like for what they both thought of as their country but they were able to compromise and that involved talking to each other the sort of thing that um, if Corbyn had said you know well, what I wanted to do was to talk to the IRA it was, you know, it was the only way we were actually going to get you know both sides had reached a point where they knew that they couldn't win you know he would have been shot down for that but yet and all that's what actually happened you see that with the FARC rebels in Colombia that was an intractable conflict for decades and again, to the extent that that has been resolved, how did that happen? People changed their position. They decided to talk to each other. It's either that or you bomb each other out of existence, whatever it happens to be. So, And the other thing thought that occurred just then was this is all part of focusing on something. I mean, this inability to change your mind in the political sphere, public political sphere, is not a new phenomenon. But the way it's become kind of... Um, hyper demonized now and it's, it becomes one of these suites of things that the media pick up on and other politicians pick up on that basically is a distraction from issues it's like almost anything to stop you know to getting to the nub of what an, an issue actually is if you talk about the way somebody says something and another thing in this election cycle has been can you remember all the numbers that are actually in your um, policy documents if you can't remember them on the spot then it's somehow like it hasn't been worked out now, of course, mm -hmm. it would be nice to be super slick all the time, wouldn't it? Just have all the information at your fingertips. But that's not a deal breaker, really. It's what are the actual issues. And it's the same over, we saw with the, the last election there in the US, when Trump got the presidency. They, they would rather talk about transgender toilets and, you know, <laughs> than they would actually talk about core issues that were going to affect most people. I'm not saying there's no issue there for the individuals involved, but it's not most people. And there's nothing wrong with addressing minority issues. But to make things like that headline issues, when you are staring, you know, in the teeth, these enormous, intractable, systemic problems, it just seems to me absolute madness. And that's what I'd say characterizes the coverage, the debate uh, that I've seen so far in the UK election 2017 has been anything other than actually drilling down into the important issues. Well, that could be because a lot of the political parties, they're dancing on ahead of a pen, that there's very, very little actual difference between them. So they, they concentrate on these very, very marginal issues. Because if you take a look at, say, the Conservative Party, 
uh, with especially with Theresa May as leader, that they've lost all kind of ide- the ideological ideological drive they had many years ago, and they've just become another socialist party. That you know the, the the welfare groups that they support are different. So they support you know landowners, farmers, and people in the city. Perhaps that's their welfare groups, and the Labour Party support other welfare groups that might be unions, um, people who work in the in the in the government um, employment. But they both they both believe in increasing government interference in society or increasing state interference in society. They both believe in increasing the uh, the, the bottomless um, singularity of the NHS and pouring even more money into that into that black hole of funding. Uh, they both believe in many of the same things. So they 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 get stuck on these kind of colour issues. So the red socialists have their little pet things they believe in. And then the blue socialists have their little pet things they believe in. But essentially, there's very, very little difference between them. So that's why they they focus on these tiny minutiae things which which to distinguish themselves the way two people might argue over the whether the stripes on a tie should go to the left or whether the stripes on a tie should go to the right or what was that um oh, what was that Gulliver's Travels book? I think it was the the big Indians and the little Indians with the eggs. One island uh, hits the top of the uh, egg with the little end pointing up, and the other end, the other island, um, hits the top of the egg with the, bot- the the bottom part of the egg sticking up. So that's what they're arguing over. I must say, though, watching Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, I I had to grip the sides of my chair tonight. Uh, it was just for you, Greg. I wouldn't <laughs> have watched. I wouldn't have watched it otherwise. I sat there with blinkers on, gripping the sides of my seat, forcing myself to watch this TV screen. But Jeremy Corbyn did, in, in political terms, if I go back to 25 years ago, being a political hack. He did come across better, and I think that's why the figures for him and his party are going up, because although he was prevaricating a little bit and trying to avoid talking about the IRA and trying to avoid talking about uh, his belief in CND, he was straight. I mean, I I think economically he's completely illiterate, of course. Um, Increasing minimum wages doesn't... Uh, to, to my mind, it puts people out of work and puts them onto welfare. It doesn't. It doesn't increase the wealth of society and increase their wealth. They just get sacked. If if you don't generate more income than you um, than you're being paid, then an employer will have to let you go. Otherwise, the business will go bust. But let, let, let's put that to one side. Let's just put aside the fact that I believe minimum wage doesn't work, and he does. He does believe what he's saying. You get the very definite sense that Jeremy Corbyn. Although he has to prevaricate around certain things in order to be prime minister, he does genuinely believe what he's saying. Um, and also he has a sense of humor as well. I mean, it, it, it's, it's there. There's a definite sense of humor. Whereas Theresa May, she's just anything to anybody. So she campaigns for Remain because she thinks David Cameron will win and she'll get promoted to some higher office uh, within the government. And as soon as Brexit wins, she then completely changes her entire opinion, believes in Brexit and gets rid of David Cameron and George Osborne. So she's just slipping in the wind to whatever whatever she thinks will gain her personally most power. So she came across to me as very, very slippery and not standing for anything really, just just wanting to be in a position of power. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn comes across as, yes, obviously I disagree with virtually everything he says, but he believes in what he's saying. And I think that's why the Labour Party, who, who were completely written off three weeks ago, 15, 20% behind the Tories, looking at maybe 50, 60 MPs and only in London and the old coalfields and nowhere else, now look like they might win or certainly 
um, won't be that far behind Theresa May. So it's incredible. And I think it just comes down to Jeremy Corbyn being much more of a real human being and Theresa May being, I don't know, just some kind of wisp in the wind. Oh, absolutely. She's just the worst type of um, chameleon as far as that's concerned, but never just quite. She's always a certain sort of shade of sickly green or grey, never anything appealing. You talk about Corbyn straight talking, again, regardless of what you agree with him on or disagree with him on. And that's a little bit, that's another aspect, another dimension of this, you know, being unable to change your mind thing. If you get someone like Corbyn or someone like Nigel Farage or at times, or someone like uh, Bernie Sanders over in the US who actually just give straight answers to yes and no questions, that's almost seen as unacceptable. You know, you can see the hacks, can't you? You can see Paxman and, and, and crew. They say, you know, okay, they think they're being so clever, don't they? They think they're so funny. And I can't remember the name of the guy who presents the, or he's one of the co-presenters of Radio 4's morning news show, which runs from six until nine, most mornings, seven, I think, at the weekends. Not at all on Sunday. Anyway, this guy just thinks, I don't know what sort of stage he thinks he's on, but everything's just a big joke to him. And when these guys who have got, you know, egos the size of the Isle of Wight, whenever they (laughs) come up with, you know, their straight question to a politician and you get, you know, someone like Corbyn, who then just comes back with a straight, clear answer. You can see they're mm-hmm. caught out. Yeah, well, actually, talking about Jeremy Paxman, um, I occasionally bump into him in Henley-on-Thames, where I live. I mean, I don't chat to him and say hello, because I'm too cool for that. I just, you know, obviously, I don't <laughs> talk to him at all. But you do, I do bump in, into, you know, in Waitrose, in the middle of Henley. He's, he's sometimes in there and various other places. In the local cinema, you sometimes see him in the local cinema, because he lives near me. Uh, but what's happened to him? Uh, about 10 years ago, he used to be fantastic. He used to really, really put politicians on the spot and ask them really, really good questions. But he used to let them answer. But he seems to have fallen into this trap now. He, he won't let them answer. And he, he just keeps interrupting them and interrupting them and interrupting them. And he sometimes said, what has happened to him? And he's starting to look a little bit like um, uh, Patrick Moore as well with his raised eyebrows. So uh, I, I think it might be time for Jeremy Paxman to be retired uh, and bring bring some new fresh blood into the into the game. Yeah, there's a few guys like that. Andrew Neal's another one, and they they're they're up there giving a performance in a way, and uh, you know just trying to look good themselves. They're not paying attention to what their key job is, which is to you know to draw information and. Um, to put people on the spot in the best possible way, you know, to, to give the listeners, to give the viewers, to have them going away from this experience, feeling that they've learned something, feeling that they understand yep. the issues a little bit better, whatever it happens to be. No, I'm all for like entertainment and you can have a crossover between politics and entertainment. That's fine. There's lots of satirical shows out there. You know, have I got news for you or whatever? You can have a bit of a laugh with this. It's not to say that we have to be poker faced all the time when we're going about our life. If indeed that is politics. Yeah, that's a thing. Jeremy Corbyn dealt with it much better. And again, that's where you feel his sense of humour coming through because he was, he was, please, Jeremy, let me answer. He was sort of saying, which was, you know, it was good. Whereas, whereas Theresa May just had a script where she was just going to answer the script. She probably spent four or five hours beforehand being prepared by civil servants, asking her all sorts of possible questions. And she was just ready to go. So she missed a couple of opportunities for a couple of jokes, actually, as well. There was one with, um, Jeremy Paxman said, oh, George Osborne said that your your policy is, uh, you know, is, is terrible. Um, and then, and she could have said then, and that's why I sacked him, you know, just as a little bit of a joke there. But she just missed that completely and just went into her prepared answer, which she'd probably practiced for three hours beforehand. 
So it, it is Jeremy Paxman is still good. It, it just there's something missing there that that uh, he's let go of, and he has become too big for his interviewer's shoes. I think. Yeah, well, she could also have said, you know, what would Osborne know about it? He's so coked off his face all the time. He could, wouldn't know a good policy if it got up and gave him a haircut. Well, that might have been a bit strong, <laughs> even if she was thinking it. <laughs> okay, now, um, you were talking about the, the similarities between the main parties and how it's all much of a muchness for a number of reasons. I mean, it's, policies, have converged in recent years and we can get into that. We saw that very conspicuously, as you mentioned earlier, with Tony Blair's regime. And do you remember the character created by Rick Mail, um, Alan Bastard? Oh, that was brilliant. I was very, very sad when that series ended. I wanted that series to go on forever, but they, I think they had explored all the ground. But yeah, Alan Bastard, he was fantastic. Now, that was the New Statesman. Did you see the stage show that Rick brought back after Blair came in? Because he came back, as Alan Bastard did it, just in theatres, but he'd become a new Labour MP. Oh, well, that doesn't surprise me. I, I'd love to have seen that. I wish he'd televised that as a new series, actually, uh, because that did happen a lot with the Labour politicians, didn't it? I think Peter Mandelson was the main the main driver behind that, uh, about that kind of Mm. Um, people being filthy rich is okay under Peter Mandelson. I think that was his phrase, wasn't it? That's right, exactly. So, I mean, it was just the reason I mentioned this is because it was just highlighting the absolute straight transfer and that Alan Bastard was able to slot into New Labour and carry on his, his womanizing and his, uh, his embezzlement and his, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> stuff that would made Bill Clinton look like a saint. Yeah, coming back to Theresa May, I, I, I think that the, that her, Tory party, it's very much a socialist party. I think Godfrey Bloom said this the other day when he was being interviewed in Germany. Um, it's just the blue socialist party. That's all it really is. And if you look at the manifesto, I think it has one line, we aspire to lower taxes. But yeah, most of the rest of it is about increasing the size of the state, increasing the interference of the state in society, increasing spying on everybody, um, increasing kind of just getting into families and, and messing around with them. So, yeah, it's great you can say, I believe, in uh, in lower taxes, but the actions are, with all this extra money going into the NHS, she says, and all these other things, that's going to be an increase in taxation. So she believes in statism. And, of course, when you increase taxation and you increase um, government intrusion into society, you actually decrease the amount of wealth. That's why, you know, North Korea isn't the wealthiest place in the world. So she doesn't, and the Tory party don't seem to believe in anything anymore. They just seem to believe in being in power. Because if you believe that... Um, more taxes and more regulation can make a country wealthier and happier, then wh why don't you just join the Labour Party? Because that's what they believe. They believe more taxes, more regulations makes us all better off. Um, it, it, I, 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 the Tory party is just gone as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's a few people in it still, of course, who, who are good. We think of uh, Stephen Baker, the MP for High Wycombe, and, and a core around him who are still very, very good. Theresa May and her cabinet are just statists, um, really all believe in the EU. You've got the British Civil Service all believes in the EU. What she's going to give us, I think, unfortunately, is just a kind of EU light where we're still in the EU. It's like the Hotel California that we've spoken about before where you can check into the EU but you can never leave. Um where we, we're in it, but we're not in it. We don't look like we're in it, but we actually are still in it, still ruled by the... um by the court of European court, still, you know, uh, free movement of people, 
single market within the customs union and so on. So it is just the blue socialists against the red socialists, against the yellow socialists, against the green socialists. Even UKIP, have, you know, they've they've lost their way completely with the loss of Nigel Farage. And they appear, to my mind, if looking at their manifesto commitments, apart from the Brexit and immigration, apart from those two things, they just look like a, a kind of another socialist light party, the purple socialists. So all dancing on a head of a pin. Yeah, that was the most noticeable shift, albeit it's been underway for some time now. Looking at the Tory manifesto was how it switched and from kind of trusted that they would kind of just be as hands off as possible. And just if they were going to kind of intervene, it would be just a little bit of a tap here and a tap there to keep things more or less on course, quite passive in many ways. And the current manifesto is very, very much active intervention um, right across the board. And again, you don't disagree agreeing or disagreeing here. I'm just saying that that has been very, very noticeable. The strong and stable thing I noticed was, has been featured a little bit less in the latest proclamations than it did when uh, Theresa May first picked up on those words. But uh, where's the from the introduction to the manifesto conservative one? This election is the most important this country has faced in my lifetime our future prosperity, our place in the world, our standard of living, and the opportunities we want for our children and our children's children all depend on getting the next five years right. If we succeed, the opportunities ahead of us are great. That could have come from any time. You Absolutely. Could, any any decade, any in the modern political era, maybe even going back to the, the you know the early days of parliamentary democracy as we know them, you could set it that any time. It's just a way of saying nothing in uh, how many pages? Just bear with me. <laughs> This uh, Tory manifesto, 88 pages. Oh, sorry, I've just lost the will to live. I, I, I lost an hour and a half of my life watching the uh, the Jeremy Paxman interviews, and I, I would have really had to slip my wrist if I, if you'd made me have to read an 88-page manifesto. I'd, can, can, I, can I work my way up to a tinfoil hat uh, theory for you? Oh, please do. Right, here's the tinfoil hat theory. If, if I'd... I have to sort of strip away all my anarcho-capitalism. I have to go back to being political and being a political hack. But if I'd been Theresa May, um, I would have just staged this election as a pure Brexit 2 election. What I would have done is I would have said, right, we, we've had this 52-48 kind of thing. We've, I, I've got a majority of 10 MPs. That's not enough. I want to have this election as basically Brexit 2. And I, I would like to have 50 to 100 MP majority. And that way we'll all know that we're definitely going to do it. And I would have based the entire manifesto on Brexit. I would have said, we're not doing anything else. We're just, for this five year period, all we're doing is we're just you know, steady as she goes. Uh, and we'll just, we're just going to execute Brexit as best we can. We're not going to change anything else. So basically, here's David Cameron's manifesto from whenever that was, 2012, I think, it, or whenever it was. I can't remember because I try not to think about these things. Keep all the tax locks in place and all those kinds of things. Just keep everything the same except um, we, because we're out, going to be outside the EU, we don't have to give that VAT contribution to the EU. I don't, can't remember what it is. Something like 2% of VAT goes to the EU. So we'll give you that back. We'll cut VAT to 18%. Uh, we have 200,000 civil servants who, um, who enforce EU regulations. We're going to sack all of them. So we're going to sack 200,000 civil servants. Who, who, that's all they do all day, enforce these regulations. Uh, what we save on their wages, we'll give to you as a, as a national insurance tax cut. 
and, and, and gone on like that. So I'd have just gone through all the things the EU does and said, we're stripping that away. That saves us this much money. That goes to you as a tax cut. Um, and so on and so on and so on. But apart from that, we're not going to do anything different from David Cameron's government. And I think she would have hammered a hundred, a hundred, um, uh, MP majority that way. But they got arrogant. The Tory party got incredibly arrogant. Uh, this is one, um, orthodox theory. They got very arrogant, saw the polls, saw Labour 15, 20 points behind, thought to themselves, we can now ram through all these fascist policies that we've had building up in a backlog for the last 10 years, all my pet fascist policies of basically having a society that looks like it's privately owned, but which is actually run by the state, kind of the Mussolini kind of soft fascism kind of state. We'll ram all these through because we've got this huge lead in the polls and they got a really, really nasty shock when people like me saw these horrible um, pro-state moves by the Tory party, and um, I, we can talk about whether I or other people should vote later on, but, you know, I might have voted for the Tory party if it was a Brexit 2 uh, kind of rerun, but I have to now really, really think, and so have many, many other people, many older people have thought, oh, I'm going to have to give my house up and uh, lose hundreds of thousands of pounds to Theresa May, so that she can pay for this, that, and the other in, in state intrusive policy. So they've made a real, real mess of the manifesto, in my opinion. But if I just give you my tinfoil hat theory, this is just out the side of my head, she deliberately messed up the election. <laughs> She's deliberately tried to take a 15-point lead down to 2 or 3% because she really still does believe in Remain. So if she only has 4 or 5 MP majority, she's still Prime Minister, still gets the swanky cars, but then she can say, oh, I only have this tiny majority, so I'm going to have to be very, very careful with uh, the EU negotiations. Whereas if she'd got a just done a pure Brexit 2 election, um, she gets the 100-seat majority, she then is in a position where she has to do a hard Brexit. So that, that's the, that's the tinfoil hat theory there. Not sure whether I even believe my own theory, but she's made a real mess of this election with that terrible, terrible manifesto. Well, I, I just want to say something personal at this point, and it's just my perspective on all of this. And that is to say, cause there, anybody who knows me personally will know that I care about other people. I care about people worse off than I am and I care about people who are better off it's irrelevant I care about people in general and I want everyone to have the best opportunity to have the best life that they can and to do as well as they can doing what they want so but when I'm giving an opinion on uh, well it is my central contention that whether you believe in Brexit or you don't whether you voted in that election or you didn't whether you're a conservative supporter a Labour supporter or anything else on the spectrum, it is my contention that there are some major problems which we're already into and are going to get worse before they get better and that the EU are not properly addressing them. Um, if we exit the EU, the parties, party or parties that will be overseeing politics here in Britain outside of the EU, they're, in my opinion, not likely to properly address them either, if at all. So I'm simply saying there are problems whatever choices are made and whatever you believe and some people might say well yeah greg we know that there aren't any silver bullets but it's my contention i say that these are some problems that are just really require our attention that we can do much better at you know we really do need to get on with something different other than this ninnying and nitpicking and salami slicing 
and all the other behaviors that we've talked about. So that's just my perspective in all of this because I can, I can hear people kind of clicking stop on the uh, audio player or shutting down a window on their web browser because they've got to the point of just thinking, oh, well, this guy listening to the two of us thinking, well, he, well, he thinks that and he thinks that. I'm not listening to this anymore. I don't agree with them, if you see what I mean. So that's just, but that's me speaking for me, not not for you in all of this. I know you've got your own philosophy that mm-hmm. we're, we've, we're hearing about now. So um, moving on somewhat then, uh, we're talking, again, I started to talk about similarities between the main parties. So let's just briefly mention the Labour Party their manifesto, what they've set out for this current election. Now, that was actually 128 pages um, oh. under the banner for the many, not the few. And interestingly, the uh, UKIP and the Lib Dems and the Greens, uh, those were the, the other main parties I had a look at, they all launched their manifestos in London. Uh, Labour and the Conservatives both launched their manifestos in West Yorkshire. So um, Conservatives did it at a c- converted mill in Halifax and Labour did it at the slightly more working class venue of Bradford University. So that, <laughs> that was just, you know, sort of, I've kind of like wonder, was there, was there anything to that? Because generally these sorts of decisions tend to be focus grouped, don't they? Um, yeah. Even if they get it horribly wrong, there's usually some kind of thought process behind it. They don't usually stick a pen in the map and say, OK, guys, we're launching in Bradford. You know, really good curry. We can go to Mumtaz restaurant there and have a splendid curry. Well, I think they probably uh, their focus groups will have seen that those are going to be the battleground seats, aren't they? Because this election is unlike any we've had in the last 30, 40 years. Um, let's say 20 years ago, the, the, this group of people who con- you know, describe themselves as conservatives, who, you know, they vote conservative and they're, you know, their families and their friends vote conservative. And then there's other groups of people who are Labour people and they vote Labour and their friends vote Labour and all their, all their relatives mostly vote Labour. But because of Brexit, things have, which might have, <laughs> hopefully it hasn't turned away a lot of your uh, listeners, uh, because of Brexit, things have split down uh, uh, along different fault lines. So you'll have Labour Brexit supporters and you'll have Labour Remain supporters and you'll have Tory Remain supporters and Tory uh, Brexit supporters. And, and, and so we've now got this, this, this cross, um, this cross fault line, which, which, which completely throws everything up in the air. And maybe they've just identified that West Yorkshire. Yorkshire, I think, voted, if, if you believe the figures of Godfrey Bloom, um, Yorkshire voted 70% Brexit and 30% Remain. Uh, and a lot of Labour, people who would describe themselves as Labour supporters, voted for Brexit. So I think possibly Yorkshire is going to be a kind of key battleground area. And that's why the uh, Tories and the um, Labour Party got out of their limousines and, and took a train north for the day to launch their manifestos up there. So from the uh, preamble to the by Jeremy Corbyn to the Labour manifesto, OK, yes, let's build a fairer Britain where no one is held back, a country where everybody is able to get on in life, to have security at work and at home, to be decently paid for the work that they do and to live their lives with the dignity they deserve. That could have been anybody at any time, as I said before. Yeah, well, I mean, we're kind of circling around again, aren't we? It's, it's to my mind, there's very little difference between these these main parties. Now, there could have been if the Conservative Party had been a little bit more ideological, and had said, um, you know, we, we we believe in free markets and uh, we believe in Britain going alone and so on in the world, becoming a kind of Singapore of the North, which is another story they could have used. 
but but Theresa May isn't like that. She's an interventionist. She's a natural. She believes that she's nanny and you know, nanny is right. So she wants the nanny state as, as much as the Labour Party want the nanny state. And that's a dreadful, dreadful shame. So uh, then we turn to Tim Farron. Uh, people are, who? Yeah, well, he's a, <laughs> he's a Liberal Democrat leader from Change Britain's Future is the byline for their manifesto. I didn't count the number of pages in there, but I did look at the first page. And uh, so let's just give you a flavour by the man himself. I want the Liberal Democrats to be the party that holds Theresa May to account over spending on the National Health Service, our young people's education skills and opportunities, the protection of our precious environment and our future relationship with Europe. Now, that's not quite as um, bland as the previous two pronouncements, but at the same time, it's not really saying very much. Well, I, I think the Lib Dems could come back from the death, though, with this with this election, because if if you're a if you're a Labour Party Remain supporter, the Labour uh, Jeremy Corbyn has, has for a long time was against the EU. He, he wanted in the 1970s and 80s to form a kind of socialist uh, republic in in England or, uh, or Great Britain, uh, and he saw the EU possibly quite rightly as a much more kind of soft fascist kind of organisation. So he wanted to be outside of the eu to create this fantastic socialist republic and so he's very very lukewarm on the remain vote and i i think he actually secretly inside wants brexit which is why he didn't campaign that hard for the remain people uh, which could have been one of the key things which helped the brexit vote win so with, with with jeremy corbyn being that way if you're a labor remain supporter you're probably might be thinking of voting Lib Dem because they are at least consistent on this being in the EU as a kind of central pillar of, of their policies. And again, if you're a Tory Remain supporter, same the same thing applies because we've got the Tory leadership uh, at least paying lip service to a, to a hard Brexit. So again, you might be tempted to vote Lib Dem. I, I have I have friends uh, in this area who are who are switching from the Conservatives to uh, to the Lib Dems precisely because of that reason. So I think the Lib Dems could come back from the death. Uh, and again, with UKIP completely losing its way. I mean, Nigel Farage. I mean, God bless him. After many many years of of fighting and uh, getting to the referendum point and then winning that, I mean the man deserved a rest. Uh, deserved to have a few pints of beer down his local pub and have a rest. But once you once UKIP lost Nigel Farage as their kind of driving Eminon's grease, they they've kind of collapsed into this kind of soft Labour Party, but with a hard Brexit and very strict immigration controls. So there's not really much for you there. And, and they've got a leadership which which is very weak and um, doesn't really appeal to anybody. So with UKIP, the, the UKIP vote completely evaporating, and with all those Remain supporters in the who voted Tory, and all those Remain supporters who are natural Labour supporters probably voting Lib Dem, we could have a very interesting mix. And maybe even if, if Theresa May really messes up uh, her massive lead that she had, we could end up with another hung Parliament again. Well, yeah, I mean that reminds us of the mess that the Lib Dems got themselves into by entering into coalition with the Conservatives. I was still of the opinion that what they should have done, what Nick Clegg should have done when it came down to that particular decision, was instead of just jumping into bed with the Tories for a quick little bite of the government cherry, that I think that, again, not as a Lib Dem supporter, but I just think from if I'd been him or one of his advisors, would have been like, okay, well, 
just stick with your principles because even though we have to hold another election, which actually could have been a good outcome for them, think how good you're going to look by saying no to the Tories. And we're not going to prop you up. But of course, the temptation was just a bit too much. So, and just a second point there before you come back to me on that. They were obviously annihilated, uh, punished for doing that, in my opinion, at the subsequent general election. So you think they probably bottomed out at this stage? Do you? Yeah, I don't think it can get any worse for them um, after the last election. But they, because they are so pro-Remain, if I'm a very strong Remain believer and I want to be part of the EU... I'd, I'd think I'd vote for the Lib Dems. I mean, e- even if it's just a protest vote, even if I'm in a constituency where, you know, it's a safe Labour or safe Tory seat and it will just be registered as a protest vote, um, if a lot of people vote Lib Dem, um, then, you know, it will be a very strong message, uh, particularly if they can take a few swing seats, then maybe, I don't think we will get a hung parliament. I think Theresa May will win with, 10, 15, 20 majority of MPs, maybe more, maybe less, but I think she'll win. But the Lib Dems could come back from the death because at least they do have a strong belief in remaining in the EU. And a lot of people out there do. I mean, 48% of people in this country voted that way in the Brexit election. So that's a, that's a large group of people who don't really find themselves represented anywhere else. Yeah, but of course then you're, you're as you say, hung parliament and then trying to cobble together a coalition again. Uh, if the Lib Dems were to take more votes, perhaps uh, more seats than expected, and maybe if that did eat into the, the Tory and or the Labour um, numbers a little bit, and I wonder, would the Lib Dems go down that route again? Well, I, d- I don't know. I think I think they probably wouldn't want to repeat the joining the Tory party uh, alliance that they had last time. And of course, their prize for that would be that Brexit is scrapped or there's a, another referendum. And we keep having referendums until we get the vote that they want. So that would probably stop that one. Uh, I think a more natural home for them, because they are mostly a socialist organisation, the Lib Dems, are kind of a, a socialist organisation for, for wealthier people, a champagne socialist party, uh, maybe. Um, their natural alliance is with the Labour Party and with maybe the, if the, maybe the Greens get one or two MPs. So, you know, I think their natural alliance is with the Labour Party, even if it's in a kind of... Um, uh, in a kind of parliament which which is completely hamstrung because the Tories maybe have a slight majority, and if the Labour and the Liberals get together with just slightly less, then they, they could they could really scupper the, the Brexit process in in that way, and that could be all they want to do over the next parliament. Yeah, well, I think it, compared to the situation they were last time when they did go into coalition, they probably quite rightly can say at this stage they've got nothing left to lose, and they might mm-hmm. as, they might as well go for broken and, and try and get. Brexit overturned. The UKIP uh, manifesto um, under the banner, a patriotic agenda for defending our country and our way of life. There was really pretty bland. I mean, they had a lot of stuff about farming and the environment, oddly enough, uh-huh. which, which I thought to myself, well, that, that would actually be a good idea along the lines, you know, of treat, you know, treating the farming sector properly, allowing people to actually, allowing the country to become more self-sustaining in terms of food production but not you know with loss making operations but just to to rebalance all of farming because there's a there's a weird situation with food production and i was involved in farming for a little while whereby you know we all need to eat and but somehow you hear constantly from dairy farmers or from pig farmers or sometimes from arable farmers 
saying that, you know, we get lots of subsidies and we can't make actually make any money doing this. I mean, it's, a, it's to me, I know there's lots of issues around this, but the bottom line is it's a kind of a nonsense that you can produce a commodity that people consume in large quantities. And for whatever reason, dealing with supermarkets, something you can't make any money doing it whatsoever. There's something wrong there. And I think it may be that we just got used to paying um, too little for a lot of our food, actually. Well, this is one of the problems with all the subsidies over the years, because uh, with the EU uh, common agricultural policy, so it, it picks and chooses winners, doesn't it? So it, it takes money from all of us in the form of taxation. And then it hands that money out to people it considers the winners and doesn't give it back to the people it considers the losers. So uh, any kind of government or state intervention in society creates unintended uh, chaotic effects. And one of the chaotic effects has been problems with the fisheries industry, uh, problems with the farming industry. I mean, I I eat a lot of organic food and... um, uh, I, I try to do that whenever I can, whenever I can afford it, because it's much more expensive. Um, but it must be very, very tough for the organic farmers as well, because when you're fighting against a group of people who are subsidised, uh, you're not subsidised because you don't fulfil the uh, the rules and regulations of the EU or the, the British state when the British state is potentially free from the EU in a few years' time. It's very, very hard. So we need a level playing field in, the, in those kinds of industries. Well, organic farming is actually where most of my experience in that area, and it's not huge, by the way, but it's more than your average person has. And basically, the the last, well, thinking of my time uh, working in organic farming, it was money could be made. In fact, the the guy whose farm it was, he'd switched over to organic, organic arable from pig farming because he couldn't make money in hogs anymore. And But as far as the organic produce was concerned, it was basically a, a premium product. It was uh, it was for a small but growing market. People who would actually, like yourself, uh, like me, when, when I can afford it, will put their hands in their pocket and will pay extra. So for the time being, things were still challenging for organic, but it was an upward curve. And I think from an environmental point of view, it's based in more in um, practices from the past. And I think it's the only really sustainable thing going forward. Whether we can feed the world with it, I don't know, but... Um, but I just think if, if uh, that type of farming was allowed to compete fairly against all others, um, I think one of the things that you'd see is more organic stuff being bought and the price would gradually start to come down. But that's a whole other discussion, really. Well, we could spend a long time talking about how uh, African farmers uh, could be allowed to import food into Britain and get around the EU single market tariffs, which would really benefit people in Africa because then they'd be able to um, get some income coming in and then we'd as people would have much cheaper food, but that it probably is a, a debate for another day. If we can get back to the UKIP party, I think they missed a great opportunity. They, they, I, I think they could have gone down um, an ideological track where they could have been consistent and maybe a libertarian track. Uh, if you talk to people like um, Godfrey Bloom, he, he joined UKIP many years ago because he believed it was a kind of libertarian party, believers in you know the, my kind of things with, of a totally voluntary society. But but they seem to have lost that. The, yes, they're into the Brexit thing, uh, the immigration thing, but everything else is very woolly and it, it just lacks a, it lacks a single pillar of cohesion, um, which – it's just turned them into another party with a different colour. Their colour's purple, but aside from keeping the pound, getting out of the EU, restricting immigration, everything else they have is, is just kind of copies of other parties. Well, I mean, reading the UKIP manifesto, 
which I bet not very many people have actually done. The, the only two things that stuck out for me that I could remember was that uh, they were proposing to abolish the TV license and also bring back blue passports, British passports. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's really critical to my life, having one of those stiff blue British passports where the gold leaf doesn't rub off. Uh, when you wear it with your blazer and your, your, hunting, uh, your hunting hat, um, one th- another thing about many of these manifestos is they're all saying we're going to increase spending in this, we're going to increase spending in that, we're going to increase spending. Where are they getting all this money from? I, mean, I-, I know we could get Diane Abbott in to do the maths there, but it- all this extra spending, it's either 8 billion more to the NHS or 10 billion more to the NHS or 15 billion more to the NHS. I think the UKIP one is in 11 billion more to the NHS. Where is all this money coming from? Because when you increase taxes, it's just my worldview, when you increase taxes, you decrease the wealth of the society and actually tax income for a government goes down. So where's all this extra wealth coming from? They, they, none of them seem to have added anything up. Where is the, where, where, where's the, uh, the mathematics in any of this increasing spending here, increasing spending there? Well, two thoughts there. One is, and I, by the way, I also read the Monster Raving Looney Party website um, <laughs> under under their banner for this year, which is Vote for Insanity. I was struck by parallels here, believe it or not. Um, and I was thinking about the Green Party manifesto and uh, UKIP to us to some extent as well, and uh, maybe even the Lib Dems. And some of these smaller parties can promise what they like in a way, yeah. if you see what I mean, because they're not going to have to deliver on it. So it can be a little bit of, uh, you know, blue sky thinking, a wish list, fantasy policy, as opposed to fantasy football. So in that sense, what, you know, it, it can be seen to be somewhat grounded in reality. You know, they're not saying, you know, we're going to um, have free holidays to the moon for everybody uh, because, you know, you can't really explain how that will be done. It can be stuff that is theoretically possible, but they don't have to deliver it. The other aspect of that is thinking about these cash promises or these investment promises. Of course, it's all policy is a policy, if you know what I mean. It's not the law. And people have said before, and I know there'll be other issues with this, but if any of these election pledges were actually legally binding, I wonder how the manifestos would change. Well, we've seen that happen with uh, with President Trump. He promised many, many things and uh, and doesn't look like he's going to deliver on them, particularly things like Obamacare. So it would be nice if we could hold politicians to these promises. But obviously, again, one of the problems with democracy is uh, what comes to the top in a political party. Someone is very, very good at lying, very, very good at dissembling the truth. Um, it, it actually encourages that kind of a person. So... You, when, when we're just given a whole host of people who just can't seem to tell a straight, straight piece of truth, it, we kind of get what we deserve. I mean, if, if you watch the George Carlin video on YouTube on voting, a lot of the reason politicians are um, slightly shifty is because that's who we vote for. And the people who are slightly shifty are the ones who, who win the votes. But yeah, it would be nice if we could hold these people to these promises that they make. But these promises are impossible. Most of them are impossible. You know, the funding's just not there. They can't increase taxes because all that does is reduce economies. They, they even seem to know that. Um, but again, I think this is why Jeremy Corbyn is standing out because he's, he's one of the few people who's actually speaking most of the time. He's actually speaking his mind. Uh, whether I, I completely, I've said this before, I completely disagree with virtually everything he says, but I recognize this is why he's appealing to people. He's, he's, he's speaking from the heart and he's got a bit of passion. 
unlike, of course, Theresa May, who's got no passion at all. He's speaking from the heart. Um, he's honest to himself most of the time, and I think that's appealing to people. And, of course, he's just gone for saying to students, I'm going to roll back your fees. Of course, all the students don't think beyond the next <laughs> next few years. So they think, great, I don't have this £9,000 a year debt, which is going to turn into a £50,000 debt by the time I come out of university. So I'm voting for Corbyn. So that, that it's very clever electioneering. Um, you were saying before about the resources of the world being wasted and so on. I think one of the problems with that, and one of the reasons why democracy and the state won't solve those problems is because most politicians don't think beyond the next election. They just want to win this election. And and how we sort all these promises out and pay for all these promises after that, they don't really care about that much. They just want to win this election. And so because they never really think about the future beyond the next election, we get this short-termism going on and, and we get all the problems that uh, that bother you. I know, and I, do, I honestly don't know what the answer is. I know that it lies outside of the system as it currently manifests itself but yeah i mean as you say it's a short termism uh just limping along to the next election and the, the i mean all my life when i've been paying attention to to politics in general but you uh uk politics in particular it's been a case of red, red or blue mostly the party uh comes along gets elected to government uh there's a lot of um you know, sort of bunting and sort of, uh, you know, celebrations and champagne corks popping and then begins a gradual but inexorable disillusionment that gets to the point where we're totally sick of them. It might take one term, it might take three terms. And then they, whether it's red or blue, they swap around, repeat champagne corks and things can only get better. The only way is up uh, cheesy grins, photo ops, and then the process of disillusionment when it's, you realize they can't deliver won't deliver on what they said they were going to do over and over again. But having said that, each time there's a little bit more of a degradation in the background situation is my point. And this is why things appear ever more desperate now, why people are so disillusioned. But do they really believe that red, blue, purple, yellow, whatever it's going to be, that they can actually get them what they want, that they want a health service, an education service, and just all these other things that they just want to work in life, you know, don't have to be perfect, but they want them to function. Can they do that? I don't think they can. I, I think I think you're right there because I've no, I may, it might be because I'm just getting older and maybe this is a natural process of getting older, but this has been the most disillusioning election. I mean, I, I've, I've been what, a believer in a voluntary society now, what, for 10 years? But I, I used to follow elections, and before that I used to be heavily involved. I used to knock on doors and try and get people to go down to polling stations, so I do have some kind of an interest. But this has been the greyest, most disillusioning election of all time. You can hardly believe anything anybody says. And I think a lot of it goes back to uh, to Tony Blair, because, um, God bless him, I, I believed him when he became Prime Minister, as did millions of others. He was this shiny, lovely lovely creature and you you believed that he would make it work uh, and then when he turned into what he turned into and we could spend a whole program on that but let's not i think i think that was it for for a lot of people i think that smashed people's belief in politicians because let's just take my example totally totally believed in him thought he was going to save the world thought he was completely straight in his own words and when he turned into the, the the creature he became um i'm sure a lot of people's confidence in all politicians got shattered because the shiniest example of them was tony blair 
he became a fallen angel, a Lucifer, instead of being Gabriel. And once Lucifer fell, I think it fell for a lot of people. And that's why a lot of people now don't say they're voting Labour if they're a Labour voter. On the programme that um, I watched today, which was recorded from last night, a lot of people in the audience were saying, I'm a Labour supporter, Mr Corbyn, but why should I vote for you? I'd rather vote for you know, the Greens or the Lib Dems or someone else. And the same with the Tory voters. Mrs. Mrs. May, I'm a, I, I'm a naturally a Tory voter, but I don't believe in this. And I think people are dropping all these old tribal beliefs and th- th- they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. And th- this could be part of the reason why there was a small Brexit majority in the, in the Brexit referendum, because people don't see any loyalty to anything anymore because they don't see why they should give their loyalty to the Tory party or the Labour party or whichever party it is because we just see them all as completely broken, amoral people. And I think a lot of that in the UK is down to Tony Blair and and, and his massive fall from grace. Well, I can assure you it's not just because you're getting older or whatever. Um, What you're describing is actually happening it's not just a, maybe a skewed perspective or that you're getting jaded you might be a little bit but that's not the, the, that that won't take away the truth of the situation of what's actually happening it has been um in my experience this, the most dismal election cycle recently and people are feeling this disillusionment disillusionment that's really beginning to crack open this sort of uh you know the the the, the shell of their of their the sort of fantasy illusion that they want to believe and the people are struggling with it and they're suffering because they're going through what a psychologist or psychiatrist will call cognitive dissonance. Look it mm-hmm. up if you don't know what it is. It's uh-huh. just when reality doesn't match your expectations or your beliefs, you know, or what you do in life doesn't match who you think you are. Anything along those lines, cognitive dissonance and people are, it's not a good thing to experience, but it's a coping mechanism. And people have been dealing with that, particularly again since Blair, because he promised so much and then did this 180, basically, turn. And But we've got to push through this. This is the whole point. This is why it's like death throes of something, and I don't know whether even in our lifetime we can we can crash through into something better. But this, you know, this, this shit's got to go, and this is the part of the process. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It's not. It's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Uh, we live in interesting times, as the Chinese proverb goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got more people in the world as well. I mean, we, in my lifetime, I think we've gone from four billion to something like seven and a half. Um, so we almost doubled the world population, which was big when I was born and is now much, much bigger. So we've got a lot more people and we've got a lot more connectivity with, with the Internet and also people flying because jet engines are so efficient now. People can fly cheaply around the world. So people are moving all over the place. Um, I have a network of friends around the world. I'm sure you do as well, connected with things like Facebook and WhatsApp and all these other connected technologies. So we've got a lot of people, uh, who, a lot of people in South Africa and Asia and various other places who, who want to have a better standard of living. They want to have electricity. They want to have good food. They want to have clean water. So we do have a lot of things to do. Um, if I can just take a step back for a second. Uh, if, if you do read, if you do get into the Hoppian kind of mentality and you read Democracy of the God That Failed and a few other of his books, uh, you'll see that he predicted a lot of these situations a few years ago, such as predicting that the big states of, say, the EU and, um, 
uh, NAFTA in the US and Mercosur in South America would begin to collapse under the weight of their own contradictions. And that Brexit and even the election of uh, President Trump could be a sign that maybe these predictions are coming true. So we see Catalonia trying to break away from Spain. We see Venice trying to break away from Italy. We see the UK trying to break away from the EU. Uh, we see Scotland trying to break away from the UK. And so as this process of state, big states cracking and seceding away from each other continues, this could be a solution to the problem of states having become too large. But as they break up, there will be problems. And maybe in 50 years' time, we'll have this wonderful, in my view, or potential view, a nirvana of thousands and thousands of states around the world rather than hundreds, um, which could all be, you know, like uh, Hong Kong and Andorra and Monaco and Singapore and all these other various very tiny places, which are you know, on a per capita basis, very wealthy and, and the people there are happy and don't want to leave those places. But just getting to that is going to be very problematic because if you look at something like the welfare state in the UK from, say, 1945 onwards when the Labour Party uh, government got elected and they brought in a massive raft of welfare state measures, a lot of people grew up on the belief that it was cradle to grave from the state. This is why Theresa May's made this huge mistake with uh, with the dementia tax, which we can kind of call it. Which uh, if you if you tell people for 50, 60, 70 years that that you will be looked after by the state, and then just as they get to retirement, you pull the rug away from them. I, I, I don't even I don't think that's acceptable. There's lots of other things you can do before you do that because. You've promised all these people this help when they get older. Now that they are older, having believed and bought into this stuff, you pull the rug away um, and you completely throw them up in the air. And I think that creates another level of disillusionment. So, uh, yeah, we, we are we are living in extremely interesting times. Of course, I hope that the secession movement worldwide just gathers pace and uh, snowballs and becomes faster and um, greater and greater and that lots of places break up from these large countries but whatever happens we are going to have very interesting times ahead isn't it interesting that a lot of people will be quicker to condemn a politician or whoever for never promising them anything than they would someone who promised them something and then took it away and denied it it's almost like well at least they promised it yeah we didn't get it but you said from the outset we'd never get it <laughs> yeah yeah you, you, you're you're a hard cold person you're, you're evil because you won't promise to give me that by taking money off other people and giving it to me you're a cold hard person i'm not voting for you but you're a lovely lovely person you've promised to to give me this and give me that the fact that you didn't two or three years later or even 50 years later in the case of the welfare state is immaterial because they were nice at the time and again um this is one of the problems with democracy with with politicians never looking beyond the next election result that they'll promise anything to get to be in those uh, those government limousines and uh, be the ones who you know who, who make the policies and go to the conferences and the g20 conferences and or everything else and get to write their memoirs and make 10 million pounds from those memoirs so th they'll do anything to to get elected so they'll tell you fantastic sounding promises i think it was machiavelli wasn't it who said uh, an ideal politician is someone who can tell the best lies. 
well, it's almost like Tony Blair. Sorry, Blair. <laughs> it's almost like Tony Blair's entire career was just, his political career was just a warm up for him to get on the uh, after dinner circuit, wasn't it really? Yeah, well, I mean, he's uh, was he? he's one of the wealthiest men in Britain now, isn't he? I mean, how much does he make a year? Is it 50 million, 60 million? I, 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 I shudder to think. I think it's a little bit more than you and I. Yeah, well, I, and I'm sure he wouldn't be buying us drinks if we met him either. No, no, sir, I wouldn't wouldn't take a drink from him. But, uh, but I mean, this um, this atomization that you're talking about, you know, secession, this trend towards smaller political, economic, geographical units, it's the kind of the neoliberal Thatcher-Reagan doctrine, which going into reverse and in some ways. And we were told this was forever, you know, Francis Fukuyama and his ridiculous end of history thesis, um, which always seemed like nonsense. And uh, so that's partly what that is. And it, it is the wave of the future. You just talked about, you know, Scottish independence and all these other movements. And that's partly what you would expect to see, uh, you know, when you've got these institutions that are too, too, too big to fail. They're too, if they're too big to fail, they're too big to survive, if, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But um, so, yeah, this is something we're going to see more of. Okay, Andy. Well, as we uh, bring things to a close for today, a lot of the areas we've got into bring up the very question about um, voting or not to vote, because a lot of things we've said, some people will be thinking, oh, is there even any point? And that's a valid question. So perhaps from your perspective, you could address that issue, because certainly claiming to be apolitical, even in this sort of hot house environment at the minute, will attract a lot of criticism from people who see that it is our duty to vote. Because if you know, if you don't vote, you can't complain, you know, arguments along those lines. So just give me your general perspective on that question. Oh, I've been dreading you asking me about this. Uh, oh, for the uh, people who say you should vote, I, I, I ask them to go to YouTube and put in George Carlin voting and watch a four-minute sketch uh, by George Carlin. But just to summarise that, his his idea is that he stays home on elections and he doesn't vote and therefore he can't be held responsible for the election result. If you vote, what you're doing is you're legitimising politicians, even if you're voting for the ones who lose. You're legitimizing the ones who win because you're taking part. This is one of the reasons why the Soviet Union and places like Iraq used to make voting compulsory because they want you to get involved so that it's kind of your responsibility too. So George Carlin, well, just watch the sketch on YouTube. It's better than me trying to describe it. But he basically says, if I don't vote, the results of the election are not my fault. They're the fault of all the people who do vote. So uh, anyway, I, I completely throw that around, and I believe in the George Carlin argument. And again, being a being a believer in a totally voluntary society where um, we'd have friendly societies and charities and all sorts of uh, voluntary organisations looking after people, um, I, I don't believe in democracy anyway. So I think democracy is a bad thing, and democracy is a god that has failed and has given us most of, if not all of, the problems that we have today in the world. Um, but oh. Dreading, I've been dreading you asking me this, should I vote now? Now, I haven't voted for a long, long time except once. I did vote in the Brexit election. I, I'm not going to say which way I voted. You might want to have a guess because I do vote in secessionary elections because I believe that um, when you take a country and you split it in half, so you, let's say you've got a country with 100 people in it and you've got a one government and then you split that country down the middle and 50 people in one country, 50 people in the other country with two governments. I think those two governments that are left are much less powerful than the one government that, that was ruling in the first place. So if you take uh, uh, the Soviet Union, 
very, very powerful government. You break it up into 50 different countries or whatever it is, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, all the other places. The individual governments are still fairly strong, but they're much less strong than they would have been before. So I believe in secession, breaking countries down. So the Germanies in the kind of uh, 18th and 19th centuries, there was hundreds of little Germanies. And each of those individual Germanies was very, very weak, but very the people there were very, very happy. And then they basically got railroaded into a greater Prussia, and that greater Prussia created the the German state, and the German state then went on to uh, get itself involved in various wars over the next hundred years, this greater Prussia. So the small Germans, the small Germanies, the hundreds of them are great, and the big Germany is less great. So I will vote in secessionary elections. So I can vote in the, the Brexit election in my own head. Can I vote in this election? Oh, tough. Now, if you read uh, an article by a friend of mine, Sean Gabb, who some of you, some of your listeners might have heard of, he says, yes, you can, even if you hold my political view, apolitical views, because he sees this election as Brexit too. And I kind of have some sympathy with that. My problem is the Brexit two vote would be to vote Conservative, because that's the only major party, which, apart from UKIP, which is promising to... Um, uh, really drive through the, the the kind of Brexit thing. Now, you could say, well, vote UKIP then, but then where I am, that would be a bit of a wasted vote because they're not going to get many votes here. So I, I can be super true to myself and vote UKIP, but what's the point? Uh, so I have to vote, if I believe in Brexit, I have to vote Conservative, but I can't bring myself to do it because of her horrible policies on the internet, on increasing state intrusion into people's freedom, people's privacy, letting hundreds of thousands of state bureaucrats uh, examine every single email I send, examine every single um, thing I do on the internet. Uh, just uh, That just absolutely appalls me. Bringing in censorship. She, the, Theresa May is, is a, an authoritarian and she wants to censor people. I mean, they call it hate speech. Uh, that's just stuff they disagree with who defines what hate speech is the government does well they'll define hate speech as anything they don't want to hear so i just i i I can see why people would vote if they believe in brexit i can see why people would vote conservative i just can't bring myself to do it because i don't want to wake up knowing that i've helped propagate uh, theresa may but let's say i didn't let's say i had the one vote in the country which decided whether Brexit goes through or not, would I cast it? I, I, I just, I just don't know whether I could or not. I, um, Sean Gab, my friend, says, "Yep, vote if you believe in Brexit, then vote Conservative." And uh, I think I'm going to have to wait until the day and wake up and see how I feel. But I just cannot bring myself to to vote for Theresa May. Um, if you believe in socialism, then vote for Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, the man's fairly straight. He believes in what he says. So if you're a socialist, vote for the Labour Party. It's the most socialist um, Labour Party we've had for 30, 40 years. So vote that way. Uh, if you believe in Remain and you want to stay outside the EU, stay inside the EU, sorry, then I would vote Lib Dem. Um, what do you want to do? If you can bring yourself to vote for Theresa May and you believe in Brexit, then that's the way you got to go. Uh, believe in socialism, vote for Jeremy Corbyn. If you believe in Remain, vote for vote for the Lib Dems. I, I, don't know what else to say. I'm really, really sad about you asking me that question because I'm sorry, I just can't give you an answer. I am going to have to wait until next Thursday 
to make up my mind. I don't think I'm going to vote, though. If you push me to it now, I just cannot vote for Theresa May. Well, I'm not Jeremy Paxman, so I'm not going to keep interrupting you and trying to, <laughs> trying to nail you down. You're allowed to keep your mind open. Final thought from me, final thought, is that the policies, the broadcasts, the propaganda coming at us throughout this election cycle are, to my mind, a form of collective cognitive behavioral therapy, just trying to make things better for the short term, paper over the cracks, band-aid, etc., etc. Something to think about. I'm repeating myself here to make this point again, because this is something we're going to come up against again and again. We will have to confront this if we're going to get through the next 10, 20, 30 years in any sort of shape. And that is that all we have beyond the promises of politicians and they're, they're spending billions here and billions there and tax here and tax cuts there is resources all we've got. We have natural resources. We all know what those are. And we have human resources. We have muscle power. We have human ingenuity. It's just a question of how we bring that together. That determines what is possible in the world. And no amount of paper promises of any sort or funny money or anything else will make a blind bit of difference in the long term. There is a, you just reminded me, there's a great book I've just read. Uh, it's called Energy, the Master Resource. And it's a fantastic book which talks about the energy and it also brings in a lot of environmental um, concerns as well. So if any of your listeners are, have a free market bent, um, then I completely recommend uh, that book. I think Energy, the Master Resource, it's, it's a great book in the kind of tradition of Julian Simon, if, if anyone knows who he is. Good recommendation, Andy. Wrapping things up for today, is there anything you want to plug before we sign off? Oh, yes. I'm uh, I'm getting heavily involved in kind of doing online education. And uh, I have a website called finlingo.com, which concentrates on financial education. We're, there's a couple of us and we're trying to... Uh, we're trying to educate people on financial matters around the world for a very, very low cost, uh, um, five dollars a month once you subscribe. Uh, it's called Finlingo.com, and we're going to we're building it up slowly, and we're going to try to get many, many training and educational services on that particular website. Also, um, with Keir Martland, I'm helping to create uh, Me- the Mises Centre UK. We've got a we've got a Facebook page, and Keir's currently working on building a website that will probably go under Mises.co.uk. It'll be very similar to Mises Brazil or uh, Mises Canada. Um, so that that's good fun. So there's yeah, there's my business stuff is Finlingo.com, and my kind of uh, ideological pastime stuff will be Mises.co.uk. Wonderful. Well, Andy, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure, Greg. Lovely speaking with you.